Coaches, welcome back to another edition of the Minnesota Basketball Coaching Podcast. It's been a while. Uh, I know I've had a lot of people reach out in person and in social media. When I was going to come back with more episodes, today is the day. Uh, in honor of uh, the majority of the state going back to school teacher workshops, I thought there's no better opportunity than today than to get back into recording some basketball podcasts. And we have a great guest today in uh, Greg Miller current assistant coach at Hamlin University, former uh, longtime head coach at Robbinsville Armstrong High School and before that Richfield High School. So Greg will be with us today. Uh, thanks again, coaches. I know it's been a, quite a bit of a, an off period and I appreciate all the support for those of you that reached out and were asking when we were gonna record some more podcasts. So without further ado, here's Coach Miller. Well, coach, thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. I was surprised that you wanted to have an old guy like me on here. We've had, you know, quite a few young people and, you know, I don't say middle-aged because I feel like we're all young that are in the coaching business. If you, if you can, uh, you know, go to practice every day and game plan and scout and all that stuff, you're definitely young at heart. But then we've had some coaches who are in the 500 win category here and uh, coaches like yourself who maybe feel old, but I think you're, uh, you're just as young as all of us at heart, uh, even though the many successful seasons that you've had. First thing here, just start with your background, kind of where you're from, where you played, and then your coaching journey to where you're out, where you are today at Hamlin. Cool. I'm, I'm proud to be from Robbinsdale, Minnesota, and there was a Robbinsdale High School back in the day, and I played for a Hall of Fame coach, Hib Hill, and uh, we won the late conference my senior year, and they um, had a lot of success, so I just had basketball in my blood from a young age. My dad was a teacher at Robbinsdale, and he took me to all the games, and it was just an honor to play for that high school. And then I went to Hamlin, and I was never quite good enough to make the varsity. I played uh, JV for a couple of years, kind of right maybe on the cusp. But um, I kind of used that to fuel my fire to stay in coaching, to be honest. And um, so, you know, that got me um, my first gig in teaching and coaching, which was at Lakeville High School before the, there was a split, before they had two schools. And um, Harry McClenahan was my big mentor there. He took care of me and, um, you know, got me set up teaching and coaching and I'm a social studies teacher. I still am teaching on my 37th year of social studies teaching. And I really enjoy that. And then, um, uh, I met John Oxen. I w actually went for the job at Lakeville in 1990 and I didn't get it and was pretty disappointed, but I was kind of young and dumb and really I, I wasn't ready. And I thought I was, um, they told me, hey, you're going to have this new guy come from Montana and he had an undefeated season and he's going to be your mentor. So I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll take that. And I meet him and he looks like he's 15 years old. And I'm like, this guy's going to be my mentor. Okay. Um, we ended up becoming best friends for life. And um, in the coaching world, you know, we um, invited each other to our kids' weddings and we just know each other really well. And we had a lot of success with Oxton. We ended up um, going to the state tournament first time in Lakeville history. Now it's like old hat to those guys, but <laughs> hey, when it happened the first time, um, I'm sure it was like what happened at Princeton. Like the whole town came out. It was huge crowds. Um, it was a thrill of a lifetime um, being a, at that point in my career, being a um, JV uh, varsity assistant. So um, from there, I used that kind of as, you know, leverage to get a head coaching job, which in those days was really hard to get. I mean, I was an assistant for 10 years. I started in 85 before Oxen got there. And um, it was um, something I didn't think was going to happen. And so when I got that call saying, how'd you like to be the coach of Richfield High School? I was so excited. Um, I was probably in tears. Um, I, you know, and then all of a sudden reality hit, oh man, now I got to do this. 
And so it was stressful. Um, you know, the program had a couple down years before I got there. So that was a good thing. They weren't expecting too much, you know. And um, so I was there six years, um, ended up having some big wins, some great experiences and just great kids. Um, in fact, those students, they knew I was retiring and they surprised me and they came to Armstrong game with about four games left. And also I see like a couple of guys in the stands. I think I recognize them. They're kind of older looking, but I'm not sure who they were. All of a sudden I'm like, oh man, that's a couple of Richfield guys. All of a sudden they kept dribbling in during the game and there's like 20 of them. And uh, that was really an honor. And um, yeah, that makes me emotional. But anyway, then, um, so we went out to the bar after and we had a blast. We stayed till closing time and just really um, reminisced. And the Richfield days were really um, fun. And then um, my, my, not my alma mater, cause it didn't really exist, Robinsdale, but Armstrong was probably the next closest thing, Armstrong and Cooper. And uh, Armstrong opened up and I'm like, I'll try for it. And, um, you know, to my surprise, I got it. Um, it was a lateral move. You know, it's kind of hard to make a lateral move in coaching and teaching because um, in this case, I would have had to take a salary cut. And my wife's not about a salary cut. And I wasn't, <laughs> either, you know, just to be a head coach. She's like, you're already a head coach, you know. And I'm just like, well, this is my hometown. You know, I mean, to be honest, you know, the expectations were going to be higher and it was just be a challenge that I thought would be good for me. And, um, so I actually turned that job down a couple of times because the salary scale, they couldn't come up with the deal. Then they get, they made a deal with me. If you stay the head coach, you can get the same salary as you had at Richfield, which that was a lot of pressure because if I ever got fired or anything, then I got a huge pay cut and stuff. So there was some pressure there, but whatever. Um, I just enjoyed my time at Armstrong. It was there. That was my longest stint, 17 years and um, really enjoyed it there. And then um, retired, um, got my pension. And then uh, I went back, it was supposed to be teaching part-time, but I ended up getting a full-time gig after a couple years at Harding, which I really love teaching at Harding. And then I'm um, coaching at Hamlin. Now it'll be my um, third year as an assistant. I took last year off and I'm um, working with coach Hayes has been a lot of fun. So that's in a nutshell. 17 years at Armstrong. Who's the best player you coached? Oh man. I had in both places. I had some great players. Um, you know, the best player, man, that's hard to say. Um, I'd say the three division one guys, probably tied Everett Pettisclaw he went and played for the Gophers football but he was a beast uh, Alex Rubin he played at Illinois State and he was um, you know phenomenal player but just on a great team as well and then um, Markel Curtis all-time leading scorer at Armstrong and he played ended up playing at Tulsa so they so probably tied those three guys Alex was my age, 2007 grad. I remember playing against him in some AAU stuff. Oh, uh, I didn't know. And, uh, he was really under the radar with that class because you had that was a Blake Hoff Harbor, you had Cole Aldridge. Man, that kid could play. He was really uh he yeah. was really tough to go against. It's a crazy recruiting story. I mean, he wasn't recruited very much. So Northern Iowa, Greg McDermott thought they had him under the radar, right? So they offered him as the only offer that he got. But they saw him at we took went to that team camp every year and he really played great against some Iowa Division One guys. And then um, Illinois State, they come in and the guy, they had never seen him play, but they knew if Northern Iowa offered him, he'd be good enough. Well, then he went to visit at, at North or at uh, Illinois State and he just loved it down there. So um, they kind of stole him right at the last second, but um, he had a great career down there. He's captain of the team and I got to go see him play down there once. And oh, I forgot about Race Thompson. My bad. Sorry, Race. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Race is right up there with those guys too. Um, I, we had so many good players. I mean, I was so, so lucky. 
you talked about your friendship with John Ox and obviously a guy we've had on this podcast before. Um, I mean, what, 27 state tournament appearances. It feels like he's had state championship yeah. handful of years ago. Uh, what was the biggest thing you learned coaching from him? Well, it was pretty funny. Um, we played each other um, the first few years I was at Richfield and my guys on the um, warmups or no, it was during the game. It was like at a timeout and they go, they're running all our stuff. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I think I'm running their stuff. And uh, it was hilarious. And uh, same names for things and everything, you know. Um, so attention to detail. Um, the guy was super organized, um, you know, running the clock in practice, all that kind of stuff. I mean, he, he tells a joke. He said, Miller, um, the more we hang out with each other, um, the more we become like each other. And, and that sucks for me, he said. So I thought that, <laughs> uh, he's just joking because I, I was more like flexible probably and, and free and thinking and would give him ideas so we were a good team. And he was more rigid. And I think as his career's gone along, he became more like me and I became more like him because that wasn't my strength. Um, so organization and just, he made the tough decisions, man. That guy, he made a lot of tough decisions that ended up, that's what I think in coaching. If you're not making these tough decisions and you're losing some sleep at night, you're probably not doing it, right? How did you get into Hamlin then? What was that? I know you took a year off and then you ended up at Hamlin for the last couple of years. How did that open? How did that come about? Uh, talk through that process. Well, I kind of plotted it out a, a year before and I just asked Jim if he'd have any interest in that. And um, it's basically a volunteer position. You know, you get paid a little bit. And, uh, and he said, yes. So then um, I knew I didn't want to just go cold turkey and stop. Um, so then when uh, it was over, yeah, we just met and um, my duties um, at first, I was just kind of observing and then I got the hang of it. And now I'm more of a person he leans on. So that's been fun. So let's get into the meat and potatoes here of coaching. Uh, a lot of experience, like you mentioned, 23 years as a head coach, you've been doing it for over 30 um, from your various stops. Talk about your philosophy as a coach before we get specifically into offense and defense. Well, I grew up in a coaching family and my dad was one of the, um, you know, pioneers probably in getting, you know, player, developing player relationships. So I, you know, that was always a big thing and, you know, not yelling and screaming at players, um, coaching, teaching, that kind of thing. Um, you know, being stern when you needed to be, I'm not saying there weren't times when I was probably harsh, but, um, you know, usually just um, working with the players, you know, I think I had that going for me before, other people were doing that maybe, you know, in the nineties and stuff. Um, and so I think that's my main philosophy of coaching. We were in it together with the players and the assistant coaches. So, you know, the team aspect. And then offense. as far as offense and defense, yeah. offense evolved. You know, when I first started offense, I, I copied Oxton pretty much everything he was doing. Um, we had a pattern that we, we got from San Antonio that no one was running. Now a lot of people run it. It's kind of screen to screener continuity. And um, that was pretty effective, but, you know, teams started scouting that out. And, and then as my time developed, um, one of my weaknesses is like, I go to a clinic and I'll fall for the, the latest fad. I'll be like, man, we got to do dribble drive, man. That was so awesome watching Minnetonka. And so I had a couple of years where I actually, you know, I studied it. I thought I was ready, tried it and I just scrapped it, man. And I went to the stuff I knew, which was more motion kind of things. But I think if you scouted, teams I coached um you'd know that we had a whole bunch of sets um some teams could only run like six or seven sets some teams could run like Ruben's team could run 25 sets you know 
and we got them from some really good places that um, we had some college connections. And so we tried to get things that other people weren't doing. And I mean, and stealing, man, Ox and I were stealing stuff from people like we still do. We saw this on TV or we saw this from Osseo and then I'll tell him and then he'll, he'll try it in practice. And then, so, so set plays um, were all, we had like some staple, probably 10 staple set plays and then um, running that with motion. And then at the end, I got um, really into the Bethel stuff with Novak and um, I like the Princeton concept. So we're bringing some of that to Hamlin and, and then read and react. Um, Bart Inniger introduced me to it. And um, at first I was a little bit hesitant with read and react because it just seemed like it just was, was monotonous, you know, but then we started tweaking with it. And I really liked the passing cut for the younger levels and then just adding stuff as you go. And it's a great base for a program. If you run read and react from fourth grade on, these kids know how to play and they're not running a bunch of plays, then you can teach them plays. Um, so that was the basis probably the last five years was read and react um, mixed with some sets and some Princeton. Season starts. Uh, you mentioned you're mainly, um, generally speaking, you're a motion coach. Uh, first week of practice, what are you doing um, to work on your, are you really breaking it down two on O with your screens? You're going more five on O type stuff, five on five. How are you starting the season off with your motion patterns or your motion concepts? Well, it's so hard in high school. You have like sometimes like eight days to get ready for your first game. So I mean, I learned from Oxen to plan the first like, you know, three weeks out pretty much every day and try to accomplish the thing. So we call that the season plan. And um, I think I believe in the whole part whole like Dean Smith. So um, to show them the whole thing. I'm excited to show it to them. So then they have faith. Okay, here's what it's going to look like. And, um, and then just use drills that are not wasteful that they're always going to have something to do with that. And I know Novak at Bethel, that's probably one thing that I he did everything that way. Everything was seamless. And so by the end of my coaching, I try to make every drill fit that. I know Hayes does that at Hamlin as well, but um, you know, you don't have that much time. So a lot more five on and five on five than you would in college where you can really break it down more. And then uh, set plays. Well, are you putting in like your 10 uh, kind of that you have every year at the start of the year, or are you doing like a couple of weeks? How are you uh, installing your set pieces within your motion? Well, it's nice when you've been at a place for a long time because they've been running these plays since ninth grade. So, um, you know, I'd say probably for the first week, maybe put two or three in the second week, probably two or three more. And then um, depending on the team and their basketball IQ and stuff, because I mean, if one guy can't run a play, then you can't run a play. That's the, I mean, you can, you can stick them somewhere sometimes where it doesn't matter that much with some quick hitters. But so I'd say um, just keep adding a, a couple of weeks um, as the season goes on, depending on if you need less is more then you don't. And if a team can handle it and, and it, you can do a couple set plays, even that will work against a certain team. Then, um, we would add those too. So motion, uh, a lot of teams are switching or teams are probably switching more now in the half court than probably when you first, uh, got into coaching, um, just a handful of years ago. But what are some of your reads or what you're looking for, or what you're teaching your guys against uh, uh, a switching defense with your motion? Well, that's one of the reasons we, with our motion, we went to read and react motion because so many teams are switching. Hopkins and Wyzetta, who we, you know, for a while, you know, we had to beat those guys to go to state and stuff. They were doing it a long time ago. And so that's one of the reasons you don't screen as much. Right. Um, and then, um, you know, 
slipping screens, of course, things like that. Um, one thing that Oxen taught me that we started doing was tight curl and pop. So if they're switching and you really tight curl on them, I think that's one thing. Um, one thing Wyzetta does that I really like um, was dribble handoffs. If people switch that, uh, just stop and pop and you pitch, pitch back. So like when you try to switch Wyzetta, they are just trained that they see the switch coming or they know you're switching and the guy coming off, getting the hand up, he just stops and you just pitch it to him and he drains a three on you. So um, that would be another thing. Um, of course, looking for mismatches. Um, if you run a pattern offense and they switch or sets and they switch, knowing it, what the counter is. So we'd always have a counter for that and try to create some mismatches and old school. We do this at Hamlin on get it inside. I mean, if they're going to switch on a big with a little, and you got to teach your guys how to post up. I still believe in posting up and get it in there. So as you kind of alluded to, the post game has definitely um, fallen to the wayside a little bit. I, I think at high school level, you probably still see it, especially, um, you know, if you're in maybe a, a smaller community where you got a, you know, a six, seven, six, eight kid, and you probably are playing teams that don't have that sort of size, you're going to hammer it in the post, you know, 25 times a game. Uh, and then maybe not as much at the 4A level, but when you, and you mentioned still, still like going into the post, do you have any set, you know, reads or actions, how you're moving on the perimeter, or are you just kind of playing freely off your post entries? Well, I like the um, read and react again for this. And also again, the Bethel thing from Novak, and that is he posted up his guards and, you know, Bridge Tussler and um, they had some other skinny guy from Spring Lake Park. I can't remember his name. He was unbelievable in the post because you have a guy guarding you that's your same size. So teaching, and I know Klingsborn at, Tartan did this for a long time, posting up everybody. So I've been in that mode for a long time, posting up all kinds of players and teaching them to post up. Um, so once we enter the post, I've just done a bunch of different things. I think I like when the first player passes to do some kind of Laker cut, but um, I, I just like spacing out the floor, you know, just getting in there and let the guy go to work. I mean, if they go one-on-one, you have to score, you know, you have to do something. The read and react guy says, um, your turn, my turn, your turn. So he's what that means is when the ball goes into the post, make a hard cut, then look for that guy. Okay, now I'm the post, so that's your turn. Then my turn is I have the ball, I'm going to do my move. And so we just teach a couple simple moves, crab dribble, jump hook, um, crab dribble, jump hook, up and under, whatever. So whatever moves you teach. And then your turn is, you know, hey, I'm double teamed, I'm going to space the floor and one thing I learned from Novak too, that's a really interesting thing is, um, is if you get the ball in the post and you get doubled, dribble two or three dribbles away from the lane, clear out that space and then dive a player. It could be the four man. It could just be um, whoever the guy who tra um, is trapping and post that guy up. And then, and then the, so the post player is um, passing to another guy who's posting up. That was a really effective action. Good stuff. Um, let's switch to defense. Uh, overall, general umbrella statement, what is your defensive philosophy? I, you know, I would change it through the years based on kind of what I saw coming up in the system too. Cause you know, when you're in a, a big suburban program, you kind of know what you have coming up. You know, you, you always had a few kids move in and things, but so when I first got there, what we did at Richfield and what I did was, you know, push defense, pushing baseline, those rotations, we had quickness at Richfield, we had quickness at Armstrong, but then we also saw our opponents. Okay. What do we see here for the next few years? We had to beat Minneapolis North, Minneapolis, Henry Hopkins. 
and they're quick and we were quick, but they're maybe a little bit different level of quickness than we were. So um, actually John Bryant was coming off Wisconsin. I, he was kind of a consultant for me way back. And he said, well, why don't you think about pack? So we did pack and it was really successful for about five years. Um, we ran it with the 2004 state tournament team, 2007. And then I had some tall guys coming up like Grace Thompson and Sean Burns who are shot blockers. And so we started forcing baseline again, uh, always ball pressure. Of course, I like kind of like the Huggins um, philosophy of you pressure the point guard hard, and then you're kind of in gap or pack. And then when the ball goes to the wing, then you don't let it reverse and you switch any perimeter screens. That's what I ended up doing at towards the end. How do you teach closeouts? That's a great question. Um, I mean, this, chopping your feet, butt down, two hands up. I'm not really, I don't think that's super effective. I think, you know, I was a shooter myself and someone did that to me. I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to shoot right over you. You're not really scaring me too much. Um, and so, I mean, if it's a really good shooter, we're probably going to shade them. So you're not going to close that person out very much anyway. But if you get stuck, I mean, run them off the line and just scramble. I believe in that. And Tubby Smith had an interesting way of doing it. Um, and you don't see this top very much, but he said, close out. And then you jump. I saw this on Twitter the other day, someone talking about it. You jump and try to contest the jump shot. And people say, well, don't follow the jump shooter. Well, I mean, these three point shooters are so good. I, I, I think that's not a bad idea. When they jump, you jump and get your hand up instead of just staying with your butt down, you know? Um, so I, I was intrigued by people talking about the hockey stop and all that. And I don't really know. John Carrier needs to explain that to me and show that to me. <laughs> it, it, it kind of made sense. I like thinking outside the box as well. So maybe, maybe that works. Um, so I like, um, well, here's one other thing. My friend at Iowa City West High, who won a whole bunch of state championships, um, Bergman taught me, Steve, Steve. And um, that is, and we do this at Hamlin now too, when you close a person out and they have, you know, they're, they're not just like going up to shoot, but they might jab step you and shoot, get your hand on top of the basketball. So, you know, for me, whatever hand, if you're forcing baseline and you're on the left side of the court, it would be your right hand. Put that hand right there because shooters hate that. Like if you have to go up, you know, from your belly up to your chest and that guy has his hand there, you're not going to get the shot off. And so that's one thing I, I th thought was effective for us. That, I think that speaks volumes to where my Twitter algorithm is right now. I haven't really heard the hockey stop. I haven't seen that come through. Is I mean, oh. I haven't seen that. So that's uh, you know, I was I I lived with a bunch of hockey players when I was at Augsburg uh, when I went to college, and so I mean, I'm intrigued by that. No, we tried to do that too, where the you just kind of got to contest the shot, guy. Like you said, guys are too good at shooters. If you just kind of just get a hand up and you know don't get beat out, like they're going to shoot that at fifty percent, right? And so like mm -hmm. they're breaking down the points per possession. It just makes more sense. Just get after it and then scramble. Um, you don't need to meet them at the free, you know, you want to keep them out of the, keep them out of the paint. You don't need to catch them right inside the three point line when you're scrambling. So I love that. That's how we teach it to, um, you know, kind of contest the shot and then scramble behind. Uh, what about ball screen? Yeah, go ahead. One thing I just add to that is, um, never put your butt into a three point shooter. I mean, that's like asking for a foul call from the reps, you know, you don't need to, you're so far away. All you need to do is just see where your player is, see where the ball bounces and then beat them to the ball you don't have to box them out at three i don't like when people box three-point shooters out and they're four. trying to and they're just trying to make it right they're not trying to <laughs> they're wow. not trying to crash the offense i don't know how many times i've ever seen i've you know, haven't done this i've done this about as fourth as long as you have but 
I don't very rarely do guys shoot and then chase after their shot, right? They're yeah. shooting it and they're holding it. They're going backwards. They're like, exactly. they every shooter thinks it's going in. So yep. uh, what about ball screen defense? Uh, maybe how the hell has that evolved over your coaching career as ball screens have became more prevalent? Uh, and then what is your kind of core? Obviously, I'm sure at Hamlin, you have multiple coverages, but what are some of your core um, coverages that you use or have used? Well, it's interesting because when I first started coaching, ball screens were a no-no. We were all Bobby Knight, motion disciples. I mean, almost everybody was. And um, a ball screen was thought to be bad because it brought people together. Well, then I started getting some players who could really do it, at, you know, both at Richfield and Armstrong. And so we are super effective running high ball screens and different things. And so we saw how other people guarded it. Um, switching is the best way. I mean, if you watch Hopkins, they just physically dominate everybody. So they just switch every screen. It doesn't matter who you are. And that just smothers you. Now, if you're as good as them or close to as good, you know, they, they've got burned on that sometimes, but usually that, so that's the first thing I would do if I can get away with it. Um, I learned from Jim Peterson before other people were doing it, icing, and they call it bluing them. And um, when we had race, we had, um, friends of the race and truth. Um, Jim Peterson was friends with the Thompson family. So he would talk basketball with me and he asked me, well, you ever consider doing this? And I never even heard of that. I don't know. That was probably seven years ago. And we started doing that. And I've talked Hayes into doing some of that now. And I love doing that. Um, you know, if you have a pick and pop guy, it's not as effective, obviously, but you can do a double switch then and rotate out to that person. But I, I love icing. Um, in the old school, I mean, pretty much everyone was just hard hedge and get back and I just think hard hedging get back now. Um, it doesn't work, you know. And I mean, I, I suppose it maybe against some teams it would, but it doesn't seem like it works that well anymore. And um, trapping, if you have a really quick team, I like trapping ball screens. Oxen was famous for having teams that were so aggressive and so quick on ball screens that you better not ball screen them, you know. But then they went against Tyus Jones for a few years, and I think he had to shy away from that. Couldn't do that. I think that uh, icing or gluing, like you mentioned, I think within the Minnesota coaching world has gotten a really bad rap because everyone saw Thibodeau be such a big ice and guy in his ball screen coverage. And then they like, were so bad at it. I think like every Minnesota coach is just not even like, I never see teams do that. Uh, I think it's rare. I think most are either switching or they're just trying to like get over and have the big kind of zone up or protect the rim. And I think you can, if you got the guys that you mentioned, I mean, yeah, you're susceptible to pop a little bit, but I think it's a really effective ball screen coverage. Well, especially against teams like Osseo who would run a ball screen continuity. Um, then they couldn't run that offense, you know? I mean, then they have to run something else that they're not comfortable with because they, they love that ball screen continuity for a few years. And I know it was effective against them and other teams like that. That's what I really like. Cause when you know, it's coming, you know, the ball screen's coming every single time. It's super easy to ice and get your players in the habit trying to switch up coverages. Um, some coaches like Jim, he doesn't really like doing that too much because, you know, then he doesn't think that they're going to have the quick footwork, you know, that's just on automatic. Um, I think you can do it maybe a little more than he does. I know um, Bethel, they had like four different coverages they would do, but what do you do? Do you do like different coverages? We switch. Yeah, we switch. We've, uh, you know, we have a more traditional five this year. So we've kind of um, talked about uh, some, some different options and how we're going to, maybe switch four, maybe do, um, you know, go, if he's in, he's just, he's just sinking to the rim, but yeah, I mean, we've switched, uh, traditionally now, you know, Aiden McDonald killed us last year in the section final against that. And he's a really good player and, you know, they were better than us, but that's part of the reason why they beat us, uh, was he's, you know, he just committed to Augustan. He's a really good basketball yeah. player. Uh, and he just came off the ball screen and our, our bigs were too soft and he just, you know, hit like three threes off a high ball screen. So, um, against good guards, it's tough. You have to have a really, you know, like 
Mitchell and Hopkins, like they're big, they're in the NBA, right? So they got guys who can, yeah. who can switch that. And, you know, guys that we have, you know, we, we're just hoping that if we're, we can contest the shot and, you know, know that we got, we, we tell our bigs, I guess, as I ramble, uh, we tell our bigs, like, you got to contest the shot. We got four guys behind you, but when they come off soft and they can shoot threes, like that's on you. But yeah, we switch, um, we switch everything. And that's what we've done kind of since I've been here. Coach Hayes does an interesting thing that I learned being there and he'll switch, um, you know, one, two, three, or one through four um, or one through five. And when we would do something like that, it was always based on the opponents, you know, you're going to switch or, or maybe the positioning on the floor, you're going to switch perimeter, but he does it. So the players know, like if we're switching one through three, it's based on our one, two, three, like who our one, two and three players are. And so they know with their buddies, they're, they're switching partners and stuff. And um, I like that. Let's go to practices. Um, Talk about uh, your practice philosophy, how you design your practices. Are you a two and a half hour, keep them in the gym until they get it right? Or are you hour 45 and getting to watch some film? What's your, what's your philosophy on practices? Um, shorter practices, especially as I move through my career and um, never practice on Saturday my whole time. I got that from Oxton and, um, you know, because I think kids, they need some time away and, you know, if they can get in the gym and shoot fine, but um uh, I say a typical practice is two hours and, you know, build the practice. I learned from some people in the fitness world that you shouldn't run sprints at the end of practice all the time. Um, you know, sometimes that maybe is a toughness thing, but um, you can get hurt that way. And you should be doing your, most of your running without sprints anyway. But um, if you're going to do some, maybe do them in the middle of practice. That was one thing I learned. Um, you know, just kind of slowly building up the practice, probably like everybody else does, where you get the players warmed up so they're not going to get hurt. And, um, you know, always a fast break drill at the beginning, you know, a couple of them, and then build into three and two. two. I mean, simple three and two, two and one. I love that drill. And we ran it a, a, a different way. I got it at a clinic where people, the, the two run from the sideline um, at half court and touch the middle. And that's a really good way to run three and two because, um, you never can just sit at the other end waiting for them to come down to the other end. So you have to sprint to the, let's say you're the two people defending in the three and two, and then you take off. Well, um, the people in the three and two, two of them have to sprint to the half court, touch the middle and get back on D. So it's a, it's a good way to, to do it. So I like that kind of drill early. Um, then um, I'd say probably 20 minutes of skill work of practice. Um, we started doing more of that as I got older and um, I know Hopkins was really big on that when he told me how much he shot in practice. Like, well, that's unbelievable. But again, it's, it's kind of like apples and oranges sometimes when you're talking about them because they already are really good, you know? So um, we felt like our strategies and stuff needed to be perfected, you know, more probably than some teams. And so we would work on five and five, probably an hour practice. When you're, you're preparing for a team, you got a Friday night conference game. How much scout time are you taking in practice on Thursday? That's a good question. It depends on the team. Like if you're playing Elk River, I mean, Elk River, when their coach was there, Randy, he was a master of set plays and man, they were hard to guard and, and they had so many and you couldn't go over all of them, but we would run our shell drill with, um, we teach the JV, like probably four or five of their main actions so that our players knew how to go against that. But other teams, you know, they didn't run that much. They played Wyzetta with Phil Ward and they were just really good and ran motion or Hopkins. I mean, there's not much to that. So not much then. And then I really don't like bogging practice down with scouting things. I mean, um, 
that's one thing in college Hayes and I sometimes you know we go back and forth because he's more into trying to take away the other people's stuff and I'm more into you know here's what we're going to do against these concepts and we'll put that in the shell drill they're going to do screen the screener they're going to do ball screen pick and pop or whatever they're going to do they're going to do ball screen continuity and then put it in your shell drill but not like okay here's exactly what they're going to do you know I think that I hate those practices they're like and sometimes I do them and then I'm like, oh man, the kids are just looking like we got to do this. You know what I mean? It's not fast paced. It's not energetic and um, bogs you down. I think. How much time would you recommend uh, to a coach to a lot for five on five? Well, um, I mean, any, see five on five, we rarely scrimmaged five on five. So I said an hour, that's probably exaggerating, maybe more like 30 to 45 minutes. And we always did um, down and back right, and stop. Um, sometimes we'd go down and back twice. Um, sometimes we run that game where you score, stop, score. Um, that's a good game and see if you can get points. And I like variety. I get bored with the same thing. So I had lots of different little rules and stuff when we were playing five on five and, you know, or we'd say, okay, um, ball has to hit the post or we just huddle them up and say, okay, here's the action you have to run before you can score. They don't, the defense doesn't know it. So we'd huddle up a lot of times and sometimes we'd call like three set plays in a huddle, like football. We'd say, we're going to run this, this, and this. So you need to know on our trip there down and back, what you're going to run um, if we didn't get a fast break. So um, that's one way we'd get our sets in. So, I mean, never like hardly ever just full on five on five, you know, maybe five minutes of that. We'll tend to do that if we, uh, like we have a one game week, right? We have just a Friday game. We'll do like, all right, Tuesday, we're going to go 40 minutes, oh, yeah. play five on five like to emulate a game. But yeah, you're right. Usually it's some sort of and we'll know, do structured. That in the first two yeah. weeks, we'll do that too. Cause they haven't had a game yet. And we'll give the assistant coaches each a team and, and do that. But once the games start going, I mean, that's the other thing too. Practices need to be short because you need to be fresh. And I learned this from Craig Euling at Red Wing is like take Wednesdays off at the end of the season. We would take two Wednesdays. One would be go bowling and one would just be off. And um, the sun's starting to come out a little bit more in February. You know what I mean? It's like get the kids out to see the sun um, and just get their minds and bodies refreshed during the grind. And nowadays with this big schedule, 26 games, that's been going on a long time now, but it wasn't always that way. Um, I mean, you're having to rest the players. I mean, after a game, you don't want to go kill them in practice the next day. I remember in my high school Wednesdays, killer practice. We did coach killed them. We didn't do that, you know they were hurting, man. I mean, just try to, um, you know, get the practice upbeat, enthusiastic, get a good sweat going. If you had to teach some stuff, teach it. And one thing about teaching to them, um, I saw Ruben's coach do this at Illinois state when I went and visited and I saw them practice. If you're going to put something new in, do it at the beginning of practice when the kids are minds are fresh. And so do any walkthroughs plus it bogs down practice. Okay. Now we're going to do our walkthrough and we've been, you know, really doing well in practice. And now we're going to bore you to death with the walkthrough. I'd rather do that at the beginning of practice, walk through, get it over with. Now they know the concepts and then try to get the practice to be energetic the whole time through. I love that. Cause you, you know, it's hard to get that switch turned back on, right? If you've been going hard for 45 minutes, now you're talking for 20 minutes. It's hard to get them back to that original yeah. level. I think that's a, that's a good point. Um, Program building. Now you were able to, you know, be head coach at two different programs. Uh, what are some of the big things that you learned uh, when you first took over those programs? If you were to, you know, not trying to break news here or anything, but if you were hypothetically to 
take over a job. You got the itch to be a head high school coach again here in a couple of years. What would be something that you learned from your two stints at Richfield and Armstrong that you would want to um, do when you started building a new program? Well, one thing I didn't want to do, but you have to do is raise money. And that, that was a big, you know, you gave me these questions in advance. So I started thinking about that. I mean, that, you're like CEO of this company. And one of the things is raising money. So you're in constant contact with the booster club at these suburban schools. Anyway, when I was at first at Richfield, it was crazy. We ran a tournament, you know, and tournaments weren't as big as they were now. But I got all the refs for this whole thing for free. I mean, I had guys ref with baseball hats on and stuff. I mean, it was hockey players are ref and man, it was unbelievable. I, I once uh, got a... Uh, I had to give a technical foul to my eighth grade coach because I was repping and he uh, was yelling at me. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, and I had to get all the teams by phone. Think about that. There was no internet. You had to call every single program director. Oh, I'm not the director anymore. Here's the number of that dude. And I call that guy. <laughs> hey, can you get your fifth grade, sixth grade team in? Yeah. You know, and you have to write all this down on paper and get this big giant tournament going to raise money. It was crazy. Eventually we ended up paying for refs and, talk them into that and that job um, was so much so rewarding so fun but man I'm surprised I survived that to be honest because it was so much work but it was fun it was a work of love you know um but you know as far as basketball wise you know as much as you can it depends I mean if you're at a smaller town versus you're at a you know a big suburban school or city school there's so many different things with the youth program you know that come into play and we we're lucky at Armstrong I mean the core of our players I'd say 80 percent were probably with our, with us since fourth grade, you know? So, um, we ran our basketball camps teaching the same stuff we did in high school. Uh, our traveling teams is a little different because we had parent coaches. When I was at Richfield, I hired every coach, 5A, 5B, 6A, 6B, all the way through. That's crazy. That was crazy too. So think about that. I'm getting all those teams to the tournament. I'm teaching full time as well. Yeah. <laughs> right. Don't forget about your time. day job. <laughs> yeah. You're just doing it because you want to be successful, especially my first gig, you know, but um, at Armstrong, it was, they had a really good um, youth program set up already. I wasn't going to reinvent the wheel, but I wanted to interact with those coaches. In fact, one of the coaches, uh, Bob Cates, was a legendary youth coach. That was the 07 team, Scotty Cates' mm -hmm. kid. Yep. And I actually, he knew all these teams we were playing. Um, and so I actually brought him in for like scouting reports on players and stuff. He's in my room here. I'm sitting in now watching old VHS tapes of, these guys and telling me about the, and it really helped us win a few games. Um, so I developed relationships with those coaches, which can get a little dicey, you know, I mean, if their kid doesn't turn out to be very good and, you know, that's always a tough deal, man. And the booster club president's kid isn't good or the treasurer's kid, you know, is, is not good enough. I mean, and that, that was stressful. I'm not going to lie. I mean, we had to make hard decisions, you know, and tell them, yeah, your son's probably not going to make the team or he's not going to play. And, when, and people would just volunteer for stuff in the booster club, right? So mm -hmm. thinking that that would give their kid a, a chance. Yep. So that, that was a tough thing about that. Um, what else did I say? For building a program, um, lots of summertime. I mean, you have to put in, and I'm glad. I mean, they made that rule, but at the same time, I mean, it, it is hard when you have a family and stuff and you need to delegate. I had a guy, Mark Weber, who ended up running all our ninth grade summer stuff. And he just took that off my plate. And, but again, it was a parent of kids I was coaching and it worked out great, but it's a little, you know, I'm sure some people roll their eyes at it in the program, but he was a godsend to me. Um, what else I got here? Um, you know, summer leagues, tournaments, um, the coach before me, he used to take his guys on like Kuya did at Shakopee and like do the 
tour of the Midwest, you know, in the summer. And I never did that. I, we went to UNI for a weekend and good team bonding and treated it like it was the season, kind of almost like tryouts. Like, okay, here's your chance to show me senior. Are you good enough? And I kind of let the kids know that, but it was still fun um, for them, I think. And um, just being around, you know, um, that's what the youth program and stuff. But I mean, with our own high school team, we, we tried to be innovative. Like we brought a sports psychologist in for five years and paid him money that we raised and he met with our teams and taught them like Jubilati who played at St. John's. Mm -hmm. He really was, um, you know, into the techniques that the Hans Kulstad taught us about, um, you know, trying to keep uh, in the, what they call the optimal performance zone. And um, so we did that. Uh, We brought in Ted Johnson. um, And again, he gave us a cheap rate, but it was still expensive to come in and not only work out our guys, it was all body weight work. No, no weights, but I mean, that guy, he works out professional football players, hockey mm-hmm. players, and we wore heart bands, so heart monitors. And um, I know a lot, most colleges do it now, but we did it before colleges were even doing it. And he taught me how to use them. And that was a big investment. And then we um, paired that up with nutrition and he wanted me to make every kid do every meal and put it on there. Um, and I'm just like, kids aren't going to do that. I'm not going to tell them what to eat, but I'm going to expose them to what they should eat. And a few of the guys who really wanted to gain weight or just get stronger and better, like Juby and Chu Thompson, I mean, they were pretty good about it. And so they record all their meals. It would be hooked up electronically to their phone, which would be hooked up to their heart monitor and how many calories they burn. So it was always a contest who could burn the most calories in a practice. And um, we wore them in games. And I know some players just hated that and they got mad at me for it, but I could tell them if they're ready to go back in a game, theoretically, like they got into the yellow zone, Okay, they're ready put them back in so you don't wear them out as much and i don't know it, i was not an expert on it um but i think it it kept kids accountable i mean you could tell in practice okay you're in the green zone dude that's you're floating you know at least get into the yellow and the red zone means you're just really high intensity and we had a little ipad and you could watch that so i mean i thought that was some of the things that I think we're important to show the kids, Hey, we're trying to improve and as a program and not just stay the same. Like I know what I'm doing and I would go to places where it was a little bit, you know, out of my comfort zone. Um, and then um, I put down here honoring the past. I mean, we did, um, we had a big night for um, our coach, William, who got in the hall of fame and made him a giant poster and had him talk to the team, and, you know, and stuff like that. And um, we had two big um, reunions of the 89 in 90, they went back to back runner up. Um, and they, we got like 12 of those guys to come. That was awesome. And went out after, and then the, we did a 10 year, one of the 2017. And, um, and one thing I, I did to help publicize the program is a hoop scoop. I got it from white bear Lake coach Galvin long, long time ago. And Oxford started it too, but I wrote every one of those myself for 17 years, every home game. I had a format and I wrote it and I saw, see Osseo is, has copied it too. Um, and I wrote about the upcoming opponent, um, little things that fans might not know about the relationships between, you know, this coach and that coach or this player and that player or the history of the program playing each other. And so it was kind of a history lesson every time and just fun things. Uh, how the, how are all the teams doing in our program? Um, and I, I really enjoyed writing that. It was a lot of time, but again, it was a labor of love. So um, I like doing that. Oxton has led to a lot of stressful, like, after or prep periods for me, he posts on, he throws that 
And I, I, it sounds like he does. He throws that, those graphics on social media, right? When they got all their records and all yeah. their, their standing. Like, oh, I try to get on websites and they, I'm 33. I'm good with technology. I'm trying to, I just like, I'd be looking like it'd be like the, um, you know, the fifth grade version of what he's putting together. Yeah, so like, too. I can't even do Trust it. Me. I can't even do it. But no, that's he's not doing that. Oxen's yeah. not doing that. You he's got a coach who's, he's got a well, guy who's an expert. Hire a coach that can do that stuff because that's what he did. <laughs> yeah, I always the tell him that. Heart rate stuff is great though. Like I've, I've, you know, you see what NBA teams did something like that when they're doing contact tracing when they were in the bubble and stuff. Like I've never heard of a high school team doing that. That's really cool. No, did the guys? I want to build off that here. Did the guys like? Could they see where they were at too, or is it mostly you telling them like, "Hey, you're in the green, or you're in the red, or that sort of thing"? Or were they tracking as well? Um, they could only see after. So after what happened was they all had it on their phones. And then as soon as I hit um, enter at the end of the practice, then it spit it out to all of them. And then they could, and, but they would like to come running into the huddle, at, at, especially when we first did it the first two years. I'd have the iPad. They wanted to see who got the most KCALs. Like if a person burned like 1,200 in a practice, that was really good. I remember Chu Thompson, he would burn like so many calories. That guy just was a hard worker. And in a game, I think he had the record like 1,600 KCALs in a game. Um, so yeah, they could see um, how many calories they were burning, um, those KCALs uh, after practice, but that that's about all they, uh, and it did say time in red zone, time in yellow zone, time in green zone as well. Yeah. A couple quick ones here to wrap up uh, advice for a first year or a young head, young head coach. Oh man. Um, you know, it's a, it's a different job now than it used to be. I just see so many coaches not lasting and, and leaving. And that concerns me a lot, you know, Coaches my age, a lot of them stayed for a long time. I mean, just in the Northwest Suburban this year, I've seen so many really good coaches just, you know, hanging it up. And some, they're a little bit older, but I mean, know that coming into it, that it's going to be consuming your life. I mean, that's, it does. If you want to be good, it does. But at the same time, trying to find some kind of balance. I mean, you're not going to be balanced, but try to find as much time as you can to, you know, spend time with your family and do things and try to be present. It's not easy, man. It's not easy to be present with your family. It's one of the reasons I got out of it because I was thinking about it nonstop. So whatever you need to do to do that will give you some more longevity. I think um, being prepared is number one thing. I mean, that's why it takes so much time. Um, and I think communication, the more you communicate, the better. I had kids who went through high school sports too. And, when coaches aren't communicating, that leads to unhappy parents. I mean, who then, you know, they might be out to get you then, to be honest. But if you're communicating and you're honest, I think that was probably the biggest strength I had with parents was just telling them the way it was um, at, at the beginning of the year, setting up expectations, and then um, making those hard phone calls, man. I mean, sometimes you got to go over to their house. And I had some some tough ones. Overall, the parents were really awesome. But you know, if a player is um, struggling because of their parent, that's another issue. Like parents, you know, are getting involved in their kids' stuff. So, I mean, I don't know if this is right or not, but I told the parents, like, if you call me and say, don't talk to my kid, unless it's a mental health thing, I'm going to talk to your kid right away and tell him you call. And they would still call or, you know, text ended up. And I'd say it didn't happen that much. But when I'd go to the kid and I'd say, hey, dad called last night, concerned about he called you. Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah. And so what's the deal from your perspective, you know, cause we try to get the kids to come first, but just not easy with an adult, you know, but so, I mean, communication, tell them what you're going to do, do it. 
um, try to be as consistent as you can, but you're not going to treat everyone exactly the same. You know, I mean, players have special needs, just like, teach, you know, students do. And that would be another thing, you know, John wouldn't love them all the same, but, you know, you treat them all slightly differently depending on their, their situation. Good stuff. Uh, last one here and keep it a little light. Um, as many know who follow me, not many, because there's not many people that follow me on Twitter. I'm a, I'm an anti anti smoker on the grill guy. And you mentioned, I think you were trolling me a little bit that you had a brisket going today. So what's on the brisket? What are you using? I know this is more uh, targeted towards John Carrier and Rhett McDonald okay. and the smoke, the smoker audience, but uh, what do you got on the smoker today? So I have a um, pellet grill, um, okay. which is electronic, which feeds pellets into the grill and can keep the temperature at a really low temperature for a long time. So my system is I put this rub on, which I make, and then I, I have it down to a system. Now I go five hours. I stick a meat thermometer in there when it gets about 170, then I um, take it off and I do what's called the Texas crutch. It's a crutch because you don't just keep it on there for 12 hours. Cause I don't have that kind of time. So at about three o'clock today, I'm going to take it off. I'm going to wrap it in tin foil really tight, put it on a tray, put it in my oven. Um, it's going to cook for two hours. Um, but approximately and as soon as it gets to 202 I take it out and then I put it in a cooler for another hour at least that lets the juices um uh, if you cut it right away all the juices just come out of it it reincorporates them and then you have awesome brisket that's it yeah I, I would love to say I got notes written down from everything you said coaching wise I didn't write a thing down about the about the brisket but someone uh -huh. will someone wrote that down and that's going to be world changing for someone coach really you. appreciate you taking time out of your Sunday. I know we all go back to work here, our real jobs, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow. most of us across the state. So thank you for taking an hour out of your day here to come in and talk hoops. Oh, I loved it. And I appreciate you thinking enough to um, have me on your show. Cause um, it's from what I see on Twitter, it's pretty popular. I don't know about pretty popular. <laughs> There's a handful of people. I see the download numbers. It's probably not as popular as people might think, but, uh, Okay. Some people get some stuff out of it. So that's why we're back here. So coach, thanks. Uh, good luck this season. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. You too. Good luck. See ya.